Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Dedu, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview Horace about the recent thoughts he's had on the impact of lithium-ion batteries on power tools and how the market and product there have developed. It's Horace at his best, riffing and letting his brain do what it does. I hope you enjoy it. In the meantime, I wanted to do a further shout out for Micromobility America, the world's largest summit devoted to small electric vehicles, which returns to the Bay Area on the 23rd of September for an immersive in-person gathering. We are hell-bent on breaking the old paradigm of car dependency and letting the world move again safely and sustainably. The event will be jam-packed with a day full of talks, demos, meetings, and test rides with Micromobility's top global founders, policymakers, investors, and influencers. Meet over 500 startups and established players, test the latest technology and vehicles for the first time in nearly two years. We'll be taking advantage of the beautiful Californian weather, doing as much as possible outdoors, and headliners include political upstart Andrew Yang, veteran tech reporter Lauren Good, and e-scooter racing trailblazer Lucas Degrassi, and dozens more. Check it out at micromobility.io. Before we do begin, I want to thank our sponsor for the episode, Segway Commercial, the sharing business division of Segway 9Bot. Their job is to help people and companies launch their own micromobility business. No matter the size or location of your scooter fleet, the mission is to help make shared micromobility simpler and more accessible. They'll be bringing a full line of electric vehicles to Micromobility America and would like to encourage listeners to reserve their test ride. They'll have their full range, including their Segway IoT-enabled e-bike and moped, as well as their full line of sharing scooters featuring the latest AI technologies, including the T60 and T60 Lite, which are very cool. I've checked them out. I highly encourage you to go check that all out. And with that, here's Horace. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. Horace, you're joining us from the port city of Nazaré in Portugal, sitting outside, I understand. Yeah. Outside the library. (laughs) Yes, Yes, I am. I'm actually in the main town center of Nazaré. It's a beautiful day, although a bit foggy. Uh, This is funny. It's a place that has a microclimate of its own or, you know, the way San Francisco does because you have fogs in the summertime and you have cool mornings but uh, warm afternoons with the sun burning through. So even though I'm very far south, it's kind of pleasant weather. If I'm not mistaken, that's very near where Sir Ian Fleming went to write the Bond novel, is it not? Yeah, well, so Ian Fleming was... Okay, it's going to go a little bit in the weeds here, but Ian Fleming was working for naval intelligence during World War II in the UK, and he he got his inspiration for the character James Bond, supposedly by, you know, meeting several individuals that fit some part of the character. And one of those individuals was actually, he met here in Lisbon, actually, and stayed at this hotel, Palacio, 
which I visited briefly. And it's in an area called the Portuguese Riviera, which is where also a lot of royalty during World War II was exiled and uh, took residence. And it's just got a very strange feel of old world. And the story goes that he, he met this character who was, I, I don't know if you, he was a double agent. Yeah, I don't know if he was Hungarian or something like that, of a real character. And, and Lisbon was a sort of a hotbed of spying in World War II because both sides had access to it. So there were Germans and there were Britons and various other Europeans here. The country was neutral. And so anyway, it's an interesting corner of the world. And I actually, what this has to do with micro, not much except... um, (laughs) Uh, I was going to make a joke about you being a James Bond because every time you call in, you're in some different port. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But here's what I I observed here. And there's a couple of things. One, it's a very hilly country. So you actually go straight from... From, straight from the shore into some hills, which makes cycling very unattractive. It's one of the lowest cycling modal shares in Europe. And again, that can be mitigated if you use the e-bikes, which are not yet popular. Apparently, you know, it's starting, but it's not common yet. And the other thing is that the streets are really small. It's, it's kind of very old country. So you have very narrow streets, very little space to put bike lanes on or even pedestrian sidewalks. So the infrastructure is old and the potential for micromobility is high. I mean, in many ways, it's like Italy where you have, you know, you should have a lot of scooters and Vespa type vehicles, electric hopefully as well. But it seems like there's still mostly cars here. And, and I haven't got the data, I'm afraid. I haven't done the research. But but one of the things I observe is that there's also kind of a lack of electric cars as well. There's a few I've seen, but it sort of gets you thinking about how to transition. This is a country of mm. 10 million people in the heart of Europe, or at least on the edge of it. But, you know, how, how quickly can this country absorb new technologies? And it's funny because supposedly here in Nazare, as late as the 1970s, they were still using oxen to pull the fishing vessels mm. onto shore after work and it's got this old world feel to it yeah yeah well look the reason i wanted to jump on today is to talk about some research that you'd been doing around or like a thesis that you have around electric tools and i haven't heard you expound this out anywhere else yet and so i thought look let's jump on a call and run through it so what are you seeing so here's the funny thing is that when you look around you and even here in Nazareth, you look around you and you see what what I would call aspects of micromobility, which are that you have small versus big and you have kind of the low end versus the high end. Um, and so one of the things that I observe is how electric motors have changed a lot of things, especially electric motors powered by lithium-ion batteries. And these motors have been embraced by various, not just micromobility, obviously we have these small brushless motors, these small battery packs inside scooters and e-bikes and mopeds and buggies and other things. But the thing is that before they came even into this sector, they came into the power tools sector. We have compact handheld power tools that now span the range from, you know, what used to be the drill, the standard tool that people would use as a hand tool, power hand tool, all the way up to lawnmowers and leaf blowers and tillers and all kinds of appliances that are used in gardening and power 
assisted, you know, housework and things like that. We have vacuum cleaners, coffee machines. All of these are powered by battery now. When you step back and ask, well, isn't that the same principle that you have a core enabling technology, like in the form of batteries and motors, that are scaled down, become Mm. cheaper, and are therefore embraced and embedded in a traditional technology that used to be corded or powered in different ways. So just in the power sector, what we've had that core technology replaces the corded power tool, so you needed to plug it in usually, or as I said, in the gardening sector, the internal combustion two-stroke um, uh, motor that love me my weed whackers yeah, and my lawn mowers. Yeah, exactly. The but you have leaf blowers. I mean, it wasn't just a few years ago. It was very common sound to hear in suburbia was were leaf blowers and lawn mowers going every day almost, certainly on the weekends, and they produce a lot of noise and produce a lot of fumes as well. And when you can generate that same power in a small package. Now, it's not quite as powerful, mm-hmm. but it's lighter and cheaper. And we, when you ask yourself this core question, and this is a step out of the micromobility or mobility world in general, but ask what happens to an industry when it gets injected with this new technology, it's just like phones got injected with computers and, and lithium batteries. What happens is, is the proliferation, number one, proliferation of different form factors and different products. It's not just one weed whacker and and you end up with like companies like makita or bosch or these incumbent makers of power tools suddenly having a a range of hundreds of products drills become drivers uh, meaning that they're used to drive screws more than they are used to drill holes they are driving not just screws but you know bolts and all these other things that used to use manual tools for so it disrupts the manual tool sector while at the same time moves up into the internal combustion sector with a good enough lawnmower so companies that were positioned around power tools suddenly are all tools and so the first observation is that it actually expands the footprint of that industry that sector The other thing is the question of consolidation is that a lot of these brands begin to consolidate because they start to use a common sourcing of parts and they also begin to standardize on the interface between the battery and the tool. The battery pack becomes the core thing is that you you get the battery pack and then you buy the tool for very little money, but the battery pack is where the profit is. And also the battery pack tends to have a finite life, so it needs a replacement, so it's a recurring revenue model. The tools are becoming more and more cheap and kind of like almost also disposable. So like I was just going to a shop, which was a grocery store, and it was selling. It's actually, it's called Little. It's more than groceries, but basically it's a low-end grocery store, if anything. And they were selling these power tools of their own branding. And like 39 euros would get you a standard drill, but without the battery pack. The battery pack was probably another 50 euros. So you have standardization around the packaging and the modularity of the components, and they're incompatible with each other. And as I said, they have a finite life. That's the one part that I really, I find fascinating about the power tool sector 
is that there hasn't been kind of a consolidation around or, or similar to say for example like the phone sector where it went towards having everyone was on USB-C or or like that in order to have compatibility I think you know the the natural thing is within that marketplace they obviously want to build a moated business right so you build you buy one battery pack and they want to make you kind of get the the first attachment really cheap and then you got the batteries and then you get a second battery and then you just keep on buying more computers. So it builds a moat around it. The reason I find that interesting is because uh, I don't, I, I'm sure you've probably seen, but Yamaha, Honda, Gogoro got together and they announced earlier this year that they wanted to do a standard motorcycle battery that would work. Is that actually going to happen? And I, when I put it out on Twitter, because we're obviously I'm, I'm consulting to a company that's looking for something in that space, and we were like, are there standardized batteries that are going to be coming on the two-wheeler or you know larger micromobility form factor that we could plug into so that we don't have to do our own development? And I I don't know if that will ever happen. It's just this weird thing like... No, I, I doubt it will. And here's why. Even in the phone sector that you mentioned initially, the although there's a standardization of... USB, and there's actually multiple, A, B, C, 1, 2, etc. There is some movement towards standardization for that, but none towards the battery. The battery, in fact, is integrated. There was a time when you could have a removable battery in the phone, but no more. And even within, in the laptop, it used to be that 18650 was the standard, but uh, I think more and more due to constraints on the thickness of the laptop, we've gotten to much more proprietary packaging of these pouch cells. The, the answer to this is that as engineers try to push the direction, you know, in terms of packaging, in terms of performance, be that whatever it may be, at the same time, business concerns, considerations, management considerations, push it towards more proprietary and kind of intellectual property controls. You don't move towards standardization as much as people would like that. But again, if it were to standardize, it may not iterate as quickly and we may not get the push in performance that it might be desired to go into the next level. But so I wouldn't worry too much about standardization as far as like saying that that's, is that a positive or a negative? What matters most is whether people use the products and whether the the sector sustains itself. And and as far as I know, the power tool sector has been growing at a steady pace, 5% compounded at least. And that means, you know, significant growth for something as old as that. It is creating more and more users. So more and more people are using power tools for different things. Like I said, possibly replacing hand tools and enabling even people who are not DIY types to do certain work themselves. And as a result, it's also creating more demand for the batteries themselves, which is part of the overall supply chain for lithium-ion, which is good to to see that having multiple sort of channels to, to market. And the power tools combined with micro, combined with automotive, combined with electronics, you know, are all driving the sector. Right now, probably automotive is the, is the largest, but it, it wasn't long ago that, that computing was the largest. And so here we are in this phenomenon. So what I'm saying is that if you observe the enabling technology of micromobility, which is the battery pack, and you, you ask yourself, well, micromobility tends to need a battery pack in the one kilowatt our range that's typically the at the high end of it essentially right so you know 30 30 watt hours to uh, uh, 
I'm getting my units messed up. Yeah, um, it's normally like a three. So in an e-bike, you'd have, yeah, you'd have 300 watt hours to about a kilowatt hour in a 300 watt hours to one kilowatt, yes. 300 watt hours to one kilowatt. And so that's a sweet spot for micro. And I, I was like asking the question on Twitter, where else would you need that size of battery? And actually someone pointed out that the hybrid car sector is using a, around the one kilowatt hour as well. So the start-stop hybrids, you know, they're fairly mild hybrids, are in that range. Now, below that, so, so imagine a spectrum of battery packaging. So you have something as small as your headphones. Imagine how small your AirPods battery is, or your, your Apple Watch battery, slightly bigger. Then you have your phone battery, then the iPad or tablet, and you have your, your PC. And then it's sort of like there's a big gap, and then you start to think about cars eventually, right? But in the middle there, there's power tools, which are largely invisible, but as you know, if you look, you find them. Then you have micromobility, which is going to absorb and soak up a lot of capacity at that capacity, you know, and then you have hybrids and then you have full electrics. So if you were to plot this spectrum and see where is allocation of the battery supply chain effectively going is it in the smallest package into the largest package and by the way above the automotive you have of course storage which is you know megawatts of static battery needed so there's a, a wonderful way to visualize the spectrum I and mean, you just understand or the micro kind of fits in this size which is big enough to carry sort of you know, maybe a couple of kilograms worth of batteries versus something wearable, which is at the very smallest. So it almost has negligible mass. And then you have something extremely heavy that, that, you know, you need trucks to move with. So one way, one analogy that we actually joked about earlier, remember, is that in, in the smallest case, these are batteries that you take with you and you carry always. You always take your phone, you always take your wearables with you. And at the other end, you have the car, which essentially transports mostly itself because the payload is less than 5% or 10%. And then in the middle, you have these batteries, which are, I think, micromobility batteries, which are designed really to carry you mostly. Because if you ask, you know, payload to, to vehicle, payload to battery ratio, that's an interesting middle ground. So in one case, batteries are carried. In the other case, batteries carry themselves and in the middle you have sort of batteries that carry you and that's where micro fits and it's a nice way to kind of understand this spectrum of packaging of batteries just as, a, as another proxy for understanding where these enablers are going and of course we've talked about computation and communications as also enablers for micro and how when you look at transportation absorbing those other components, right, the communications and computation, the automobile does it differently than the way micromobility does. And again, these should be things that signal to you that, hey, there's something interesting going on here. This is the Goldilocks zone. It's where things make a lot of sense and are super efficient and can rapidly evolve. Totally. So, I mean, I think <laughs> the... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I love this. I love this framework of oh, going... I, I've got one more, by the way, if, if you want to hear it. Yeah, sure. It's sure, not quite sure. electric yet. It's not quite electric yet, but I'm developing this, this observation separately also. As I said, you know, I'm here in a lovely aquatic space, and I observe something about boats. 
similar phenomenon, which is that, you know, if you think about vessels, floating things, you've got, on one hand, you've got the traditional motorboats and you've got the sailing boats, which tend to get bigger and bigger over time and are costly and not really used all that much if you think about, you know, pleasure craft. You do have also fishing vessels and transport vessels, which are used extensively and intensively and are, you know, those are the trucks of the industry. But you've got the personal watercraft or personal boats that that are kind of in one segment. But then this new category emerged, which used to be called jet skis. Now they're called PWCs, which are effectively micromobility for boats. Now they're not electric, or there's some that are, but they're not mostly electric yet. But they use a two-stroke engine. They're really not very good at long distances. They're almost all exclusively recreational. There are some life-saving duties and maybe some police duties that they are used in. I think they're used as police uh, vehicles in, in Venice, of all places. But you have this new category of micro-boating. I personally am not a user. You know, I think they're noisy and polluting. But the fact of the matter is that if you if you measure consumption, which is what people want to do is they want to get on a job to be done would be like, I want to just use boating for a few hours, not a few days. And I don't want to have to deal with parking in the marina for all season. And you want to pull it in and out of the water fairly easily. Then you have this, this new category that emerged. I disagree because I think that that feels to me like a basic motorbike. Where I think the micromobility of the sea is coming, and I'd love your thoughts on this, Horace, is have you seen the electric hydrofoil surfboards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course, I, 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 I'm getting to that. But the, the point I'm making is that when, when you see it through this lens and you start to understand the spectrum, you'll see holes appear. And so what the personal watercraft did is fill the hole below the motorboat and above let's say the surfboard right and you have that empty space that someone stuck a motor in Uh, it's a motorized uh, initially because these were coming from the surfing mindset effectively is they 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 said what is the smallest thing we can motorize and then we of course the technology at the time two-stroke with an impeller got us the jet ski but as we see electric coming to this space you can almost predict what's going to happen. The ability to get an even smaller vehicle on the water that's powered and has some utility and some market for smiles, as we call it, then you immediately see these potentials for a, uh, like you said, a hydrofoil architecture, microcrafts, and potentially other things. I'm not an expert on this, but when you put on the right lenses, you see kind of the concept of micromobility or micro everything everywhere. And I, you know, I always talked about the micro computer as being the ancestor of micromobility. But you see it now in two wheels, you see it in, on the watercraft, you see it in power tools. The idea is that these enabling technologies, batteries, motors, communications, computation, allow a scale down and an increase in availability, accessibility, uh, conformability, and therefore utility and, and number of users. That's the fundamental process at work here. And this is why this is so exciting to me. Totally. I 100% agree with you. The Cambrian explosion, I think, for watercraft is only just beginning. So 
I think the one thing that's very fascinating, especially on the water about how micromobility is going to develop there is that it, it seems to pair really well with that new technology of computer optimized hydrofoils. Yeah. Again, we're tip of the iceberg there and no pun intended. You know, I have some friends who are into like water vehicles and so on, but we have also a rowboat over in Finland, which we use on the lake. And we switched away from an internal combustion engine to an electric one. And it's so much better. You know, in fact, we're in the second generation of an electric motor. We used to be a 12 volt kind of trolling motor. And now it's more of a, it's a product called Torquedo. It's a, it's a more custom made outboard replacement, if you will. And they're expensive and they're clumsy and they're, you know, they're not as efficient as they should, you know, or, or ergonomic as they should be and so on. But you can see it happening. And to me, this is the, the struggle is that when you see something, it's obvious, you know, it's going to happen. Only question is when and how and who. The question of if is not really a challenging question, right? Again, I encourage you to look around and see micro everywhere. I think that's that's the question is, where else could it go? What is micro besides uh, in our world, what we think of micromobility, the idea of micro, the idea of, of small, the idea of good enough, but better on a new dimension, uh, the dimension of, again, accessibility, uh, allowing more people to do more things. This is classic Christensen theory, right? The route that this humility takes to market is fascinating. You know, in some cases, it comes in through the non-consumer, the low-end consumer. In some cases, it comes in through through maybe a country that has constraints on itself, like Japan did after the war, or, or South Asia, as you know, the case may be. And then it eventually becomes commonplace everywhere. And this is, this is the process of analysis that you need to be able to do is not to ask if. I think that's pretty evident. The question is how. And so the path to market is what's unsolvable at this moment, right? And it's not only unsolved, but unsolvable because there are too many possible permutations that can occur. It's, of course, the power of the individual as well. So someone can, it needs an individual, it needs a Steve Jobs, it needs an innovator out there who, who markets the product or who at least marries the market to the invention. And that's, you know, the Henry Ford historically in the automotive, etc. Those are the unknowables right now. But to me, to say that, you know, micro is a crazy idea. No, to me, it's, uh, and I love the fact that we can just use the word micro. It doesn't apply just to mobility. It applies to a lot of aspects of life, which if effectively are the low-end disruptions in life. So that that's all, you know, again, again these are thoughts on the holiday, right? <laughs> thoughts you may have while you're... you're you're in the middle of a seashore. But yeah, think about that. And I think if you look, you'll find. And and it's it's fascinating. I, I have another thought, and I don't know if we have time. I think we do, yeah, 30 minutes. It's like, it's funny how, you know, when I was here as well, I rented a car. I, had, I know it's a shameful thing, but I, I had to do it. And it was a very small, it's the smallest car you can pretty much get now, in I think, in Europe, which is a Fiat 500, which is a one-liter engine. And it was struggling. What's interesting is that car is more fashion than it is function. It doesn't have a lot of space for anything in the trunk. It can barely fit four people and probably not four adults. 
It has a tiny engine and it's... Yeah, I know, but you look fent. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. I think they're phenomenal. I think they, well, I like the older ones, but but it's okay. It's okay. But let me point... <laughs> let me tell you this anecdote. So I told you Portugal is very hilly. And so there are these large highways that are fairly new, but they, you know, they tend to level things out a bit, but they still have giant rising and then falling. Like uphills? Uphill, yeah. And and this little car could not keep up with the speed limit, which is 120 kilometers an hour, uphill. And I was thinking, you know, one liter, it's fairly economical and fairly low emissions. And it's got a mild hybrid technology as well. Somehow it does regen and then it gives you back some power imperceptibly. It's a really tiny motor. I think it's like a starter motor. That's neither here nor there. The, the thing that, that struck me, though, is that it was designed for Europe, and it was designed to cope barely with the, you know, flat 120 or more, but not so much on hills. And yet, it's considered underpowered. It's considered something that you wouldn't want for yourself as a daily driver or I don't know what. But it's actually perfectly adequate. Older cars, like the original 500, would struggle at all even getting to 120, never mind uphill. And what impressed me is, though, is that it's like we tend to dismiss this small car because it's underpowered and it doesn't have the optimality of cargo and passenger space, but it's actually perfectly adequate for city driving. It's perfectly adequate for a small country. And yet the market moves towards SUVs and things which, frankly, I mean, you need that capability less than 1% of the time. And so... Well, I was just exactly my point, which is like, how often in that car's life will it be on one of those big uphills in which it might go, what, 80 k? No, 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 it certainly does 100. It certainly does 100, but not, you know, you set the cruise control to 120 and you see that it can't keep up in sixth gear, maybe in fifth, it could do better. But my point is that we have been spoiled. We have cars that are more than good enough. And we may laugh at this little car that doesn't quite make it up the hill. But again, why do you need that much power? You know, again, this is the whole question of humility. It's like if someone in the car with you might be laughing at you, but on the other hand, you should be proud of the fact that you have a vehicle that maybe cannot do the most that can be done. It's about being adequate. And I would say it overserves. In fact, during my stay here inside a small town like Nazare, that car was far too big, far too, you know, needing parking and unable to maneuver on the streets. So, of course, I switched to a bike and I got rid of it. But for a moment, I, you know, I needed it for some long distance trips I had. But this is the heart in this context where I am here. The Fiat 500 is way too big. It's way too much. And yet you might argue that for most people, it's not enough. That question about bundling, and this is why people would say, okay, I'll, because it's not enough in some situations, I'm gonna get the, the larger option, I'm gonna get the SUV. It becomes a race towards the most improbable scenario being the, most, the one you actually design for. Cars are armored in the sense that they have protection for the passenger because they go fast. They go fast because they go far. But the probability of going 
or needing to go far is fairly low. So the probability of you needing speed is very low and the probability of you needing protection is therefore very low. But we define the entire market by these extremes as opposed to medians. We define the market for automobiles by the most extreme scenarios. Again, whenever I put forward, hey, look at this cute old car, they say, yeah, but it's not safe. Well, it's not safe if you drive it at 120 and you hit something. But if you're only going to be driving at 30 kilometers an hour, it's perfectly adequate. An old 500 or an old Mini or an old Citroen. It's... Yeah, so the argument will be, and as oftentimes as I receive, it's like, but it's not only you on the road. It's, it's what everybody else ends up driving. And so there's this, I found this such a hard counter when people talk about micromobility. So you'll oftentimes hear people, you know, it's like, oh, well, what about e-bikes and all that stuff? If they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine with that. I'd love to ride one, but I don't ever feel safe because I'm riding in with a lot of these big SUVs who can't see me. And so the only response to that is to say, we should build dedicated infrastructure and that takes time. That takes a long time because you have to go and justify it and explain it and people don't track it and don't really know what this is and as a space thing. It's a chicken and egg problem, but I would argue the same way. Let's assume that you are a person who is facing violence every day. You are a person who is either a woman or someone who is non-violent. And random people on the street will hit you in the face, maybe shoot you and stab you as well. And you say, well, you know, I just don't feel safe going outside. And some people would, would tell you, well, go to the gym, get yourself some weaponry, go get some body armor and go out there. <laughs> That's the argument, right? And, and it's, it's like, oh, well, of course, in order for me to be part of society, I need to go to the gym to work out, make sure I know how to do kung fu fighting or whatever it is you need to do to protect yourself and get out, get yourself a couple of guns, you know, and carry them with you all the time. That's our mentality. If someone steps up and says, you know, I want to go out without body armor and without wearing a pistol, Everybody says, well, you, you, there's something wrong with you. You know, you're, how can you be so reckless? How can you be, th think of the children, you know? How could you let your children out there without body armor and a weapon? That's our mentality right now. So, of course, we answer, well, yes, let's create protected spaces for our, you know, unarmed citizens and, you know, let the armed citizens, you know, have their 80% of infrastructure. And then, then we, we only ask for 20%. You get into a situation, and I am an advocate for separated infrastructures, but you have to ask first fundamentally, how is it that we've abdicated the ability to walk freely and not require armor? If you look at photographs from the early 20th century in Western countries, and I'm talking New York or Brussels, or even as late as the 1920s in some of these countries, people and, and children would walk on the street. Not on the sidewalk, but on the street. You would have children playing on streets in cities. I mean, not, not suburbs, but in urban centers. They would play on the streets. They would play soccer or hockey or whatever they wanted to play. They would play hide and seek. I grew up at a time when actually this was still possible in the 70s in some countries. But over time, that space has been effectively abdicated and it's no longer available to people it's only available to cars and no person is considered sane allowing their children out to play in the street uh, you know the, the the idea of let your kids out and then just shout out from the window it's dinner time and have them come home 
is absurd today. How did we get there? And it's not yes. a normal thing what we have now. I mean, it's far more normal what we used to have. Would you start to ask this question? And again, urbanists are aware of this and are saying, how can we rebuild neighborhoods so that they're welcoming to people again? I think these are more profound questions as opposed to starting to have this argument with, with someone about protected or unprotected bike lanes or whether you know bikes should be allowed or we should use them. And, and that's why I'm saying you're asking the wrong question when you're comparing an unprotected with a protected vehicle. It's like, again, why would you go out without carrying a weapon? And again, you might think it's perverse to do so in New Zealand, but I'm sure there are parts of the world where going out without carrying a weapon is considered a foolhardy. But we don't want to be there, right? We don't want to well, live like that. Right. And I think it that comes down to like the people who live in places where you have to go and carry guns would probably look at the place where you don't have to go carry guns because nobody else carries guns and go, well, that looks pretty good. Nice. I would like to go live there, you know. It would be nice to not walk around with that terror all the time. Well, that's the problem. You don't perceive it as terror because it's normal. And this is where I could give you a far simpler idea. My wife was once with me in California and she got it into her head because she's from Finland that she would take the train from Silicon Valley somewhere in Cupertino, not, not Cupertino, perhaps Palo Alto, something like that, up into San Francisco because she saw on the Internet that there was a train. And she said, you know, I'll go from my, the hotel or whatever to the train station and take the train and see San Francisco. But she had to walk a mile or two or two kilometers or so to get to the train station. And as she's walking, it happened she, that she was pregnant at the time, as she's walking, people in cars would stop by and say, ask her if she's okay. She was perplexed by this, you know, so a person walking was considered abnormal in, in, in the United States, in a very wealthy part of the country. And in, in Finland, it's not just normal, but it's, you know, natural and expected that people walk to get to public transport. So it's all about what surrounds you. And this is one of the great privileges of travel is that when you are able to experience different worlds, it's like you get to see both time travel forwards and backwards but you also get to see kind of different worlds as if you travel to a different planet and you're just like why are people so different here than they are elsewhere then you start to see possibilities and that's to me the the infrastructure arguments are not so much whether the cost effective option a or b the infrastructure arguments is like how do we get people to think what is normal and what is abnormal? How do we change that perception? And it's funny that in a world of the internet and access to billions of YouTube videos and every experience available to you is, a, is available online, and yet we still cannot change the perception or core perceptions about what is normal and what is abnormal, especially with transport, with safety, with ways of living. And I'm wondering how long it takes to change that. So that, that's really the fundamental struggle. I, I agree. And I don't think, you know, I've been having some really fascinating discussions with some entrepreneurs, some of whom have been on this podcast and who are really, you know, who are really at the forefront of this. And there we've been arguing back and forth because my response to that is to go, well, we're just going to have heavy micromobility stuff that conforms to the existing infrastructure and car based systems where so you get a for example like a an Akimoto or a Nimbus or something like that that's a kind of a little bit larger of a vehicle and 
you know, very much like a car, and but capable, but technically micromobility, and them responding, absolutely not, no, 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 we think it'll just be that there is going to be a whole, there is a, there is a flood of new infrastructure coming, and it's all going to be things like bike lanes and protected infrastructure, and micromobility is going to explode that way. And we actually agree, we think micromobility is both going to, is going to explode naturally, it's just a question of how, and where, and what form. And I don't think that there's a clear answer to that. I, do, I think we can't say it. I think it's going to be largely city by city or, or yeah, area it, by it area. It is. It's about, it's the fact that we are distributed in so unevenly in terms of how we live and what cultures we have that, you know, and this is what I'm always impressed by is in my travels is that although as far as the internet is concerned, there's a lot of commonality. Whether you are in any part of the world, people understand social media and understand influencer and, and understand Instagram and understand whatever it is that that is the most common because billions of people are using the same technology online, the same exact use cases, the same exact dynamic. But on the ground in physical world, the differences are astonishing across the world. And and th- there are some changes like I remember when when I grew up from the 80s through the 90s, how going into a store you would see perhaps only local brands. And then over time, globalization brought more and more global brands. And we ended up with these internationals, you know, defining more, more and more of what we buy. And so clothing brands first, then some forms of beverages, for example, Coca-Cola. And then you end up with even food items and Nestle and others who are effectively uh, now creating a global normative eating, if you will, because that used to be very different, you know. Uh, what was for breakfast in one country was definitely not for breakfast in another country. But there, we are kind of slowly more and more homogenizing a lot of our cultures. But we're not homog- except for the automobile, we're not homogenizing a lot of our transportation yet. And this is what one of the core questions is how did the automobile succeed? How did the automobile impose itself upon every country and every citizen of the planet saying that this is the aspiration you should have? You should have this metal box you sit in that moves you around and I, I have to hand it to the car I mean I'm, I'm a great admirer of the car as having achieved this inter- incredible mind share of what it means to move around and the only ideas that people who have cars are they dream of is is flying cars <laughs> you know, it's, it amuses me yes. uh, you know it, it's like going up instead of going down which is much more interesting to me but this is where you know the paradoxes lie you know what is common what is uncommon why do people do what they do and yet in other places they do other things you see that that's the, the it's not that there's a universal rule that this is right or wrong it's just that we've chosen a construct of how to live that happens to be local in some cases and not in others but it's it's this is where and i think you have to be a sort of an anthropologist or or a sociologist or someone who is studying the social aspect of life as opposed to simply a technologist which is what i am but you know this is why you have to have a much more of a broad understanding and curiosity i think to be uh, successful here but anyway it's a wonderful world we live in it is it is hey well look i'm conscious of time so i think we'll wrap it up there but i I just want to say thank you horace as always love your dispatches from random places around europe as you as you oftentimes bring them to uh (laughs) bring them to us dispatches (laughs) but yes anyway thank you thank you horace and we'll uh we'll be in touch soon